to our study tonight. Uh, this uh, series is entitled The Character of God. And so we're uh, looking at these matters in regard to what the Bible says about God's character. Way back in the beginning, when God created our first parents, it said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Now, this represents a tremendous destiny and dignity and part of, our, uh, part of who we are, uh, because there's no other creature, as far as we know, in the entire universe that was ever portrayed in Scripture as being made in the image of God. Now, the tragedy of man's experience was that he rebelled against God very early in his experience. And so, therefore, God, desperately desiring to communicate with these creatures that he'd made in his own image, had to do it through the avenue of a book, which we call the Bible. And over the process of time, uh, through prophets in the Old Testament, writers like David and Solomon, and Moses, and in the New Testament, the uh, followers of Jesus, both in the Gospel record and in the Acts and the uh, study uh, writings of Paul and Peter and James and so on, it became a completed book. But basically, throughout the book called the Bible, God has revealed his character. And so we are looking at some things these four evenings that demonstrate what God's character is really like. Because throughout the pages of Scripture, it is manifest in terms of in multiple places where the character of God, what he's really like, is there. And perhaps we never read the Bible with that in mind because we're looking for something else. But if we ever stop to think, what does this say about God's character? What is he really like? We would be absolutely amazed about the things that God has said. Uh, we are using a companion book called The Character of God, and uh, we are offering that with the uh, CDs together as a package. Uh, the CDs normally uh, go for $15 for the entire set, which still is true, and the book is $15. But if you want the two together, it's 25 which we feel is about our price. So if you'd like to uh, get those two together... Uh, they will be complete this week, and you can see Pat at the break time for that. So, um, it's important then that we would investigate not what people say about the Bible, but what the Bible says about itself and about the great God it represents. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to a couple things in the New Testament. First of all, we turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament. And in chapter 3 of Philippians, where Paul is noting his own experience with God and talks about who he was before, and then he said all these things, all these things that he counted uh, as important, he now counts as lost for the sake of Christ. It's an amazing thing. And then as he goes further on, he says in verse 8 and following, More than that, I count all things but loss for the surpassing uh, worth of knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, that I might found in him, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which is based on the law, but what, that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. But then in verse 10 he says, That I might know him. Notice that little phrase there. 
that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, being, uh, that I might share in his suffering, being conformed to his death. So let's go back. Let's go back one epistle to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, please. Ephesians, chapter 3. And beginning with verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, or 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may, we may strengthen with, be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, there's the word again, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. On Sunday night, we looked at several aspects of the character of God, beginning with, uh, in some ways, the most important, and that is his kingship. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And that phrase of he being king of kings and lord of lords, or something similar to that, is found in the epistle or the book, Prophet of Ezekiel, 150 times. So it's an amazing thrust of who he really is. And one of the things that should help us in the desperate time in which we live is the knowledge and assurance that he is indeed king of kings and lord of lords. And he is in charge of all things in the sense of him being that position. And then we looked at other things. And last night we looked at some aspects where the most familiar phrase that was used of God in the life of the Lord Jesus was Father. Uh, he, he continually used that address when he uh, prayed audibly for the people's uh, observation as he moved along. And the shepherd and, and all of those things, Savior. Tonight we want to look at something at the beginning of the uh, study under this theme. Okay, here we go. I'm still not getting the first one up there, Dean. Don't think. Wait, wait, I guess I'm all right. I just, there's one line in the top that's not there. Would you open your Bibles now, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. You may remember the story of how uh, the people of Israel are in Egypt and they're suffering terrible under the rigorous slavery that they're under. And Moses, being brought up in Pharaoh's court, adopted legally by Pharaoh's daughter, had an opportunity to be a great Pharaoh in his own right, probably could have released the people himself, but that was not God's intention. God had a different point of view. And so uh, you may remember that Moses was banished into the wilderness in the Sinai area, and he spent 40 years from being this great pending leader of the, uh, uh, actually the world, because the pharaohs uh, were the greatest conquerors in the world at that point in time. And all that was put aside and given up for the sake of identifying with his people. And all he talked to for 40 years were sheep. And when he came to the point of total humility before God, God now began to act. And so let's look at chapter 3. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, another name for Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and the bush was burning with fire. The fire wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside 
and see this marvelous sight. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And notice what God said. Take off your shoes, man. This is holy ground. Okay. It represents then something that God wanted to identify with and communicate so desperately to this leader of what became God's chosen people that God was holy and needed to be treated as holy. So notice that first phrase that's up on the, on the PowerPoint. Who shall not fear you, O Lord? This is from Revelation. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. That is yet pending. That is yet future. One day it will take place. Now let's go to the uh, well. Let's go to one other scripture also in relationship to these two. Turn with me to Psalm 86, the 86th Psalm. And in Psalm 86, verses 9 and 10, it's a repeat of what was said in Revelation 15, where it says, "All nations whom Thou hast made shall come and worship before Thee, O Lord." They shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and dost wondrous things. Thy alone art God. And you wonder, well, when is this going to happen? Remember that in the book of Philippians, there's a particular litany that goes through the middle part of chapter 2, where it says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be demanded but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then let's look also at verses uh, uh, 6 and following of that same passage, where it says, in beginning with verse 8, There is no one like thee among the gods. There are no one other works like thine. All nations so thou hast made shall come and worship before thee. So that is yet pending. Now let's go back to Exodus chapter 30, which is the um, illustration or the declaration of how God wanted the people of God at that time, to recognize his holiness. And it had to do in the latter part of the book of Exodus with the building of the tabernacle, which was uh, overseen uh, by Moses himself. And it was a remarkable structure. It was uh, built in the wilderness, so it was something that had to be portable. But in chapter 30, verse uh, uh, verse 10 it says, and Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. Now, this represents the part of the tabernacle that became the holiest of holy place. Therefore, it was called the Holy of Holies. It was within the inner sanctuary, and it was so holy that only the high priest himself could enter that structure once a year on what was called then in time the Day of Atonement there to make, uh, to, to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. So Aaron shall make atonement on his horns once a year. Notice it says there. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. 
So there was a carrying of the blood from the sacrificial altar on this very sacred day into the Holy of Holies where it was sprinkled. And this was to be representation, you see, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who one day would give his life as an offering for everyone. Uh, Now, this was an incomplete system. It was wonderful for its day, but it was a type of that which would be fulfilled later on through the Lord Jesus Christ because the high priest at best was just a, just a man, subject to the same problems that other people had. And uh, it was only a representation, because remember that it says in the New Testament, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats and heifers, sprinkling of the blood of a heifer, should wash away sins. It had to be a type. But it began to settle in their minds what was going to take place. See, as things went along, Historically, there became more and more evidence of what God wanted to accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the tremendous advantage of living in this side of history. Have you ever thought about that? All this stuff has gone on before. and We can read about it and, and be inspired by it and so on. But we are the result of all those things that have been accomplished until we come to the place where God has described our time as the latter days. Okay. So we're in Leviticus, so let's look at 11, chapter 11, verse 44 of this book as well. Or in Leviticus, we were in Exodus, sorry. Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, where it says, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And then let's go to Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6 as well. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord has chosen you as a people for his own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Notice verse 7. For the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than the peoples. You were the fewest. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to their forefathers and brought them out with a mighty hand from the house of slavery and so on. It just... He had chosen this people group, the, uh, the seed of Abraham, of Isaac, and, and Jacob, that he would pour his blessing upon. They weren't any more special than anybody else. That was what God had chosen. You heard the old phrase, haven't you? How odd of God to choose the Jews. There's a second phrase to that, by the way. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but odder, odder still that we should choose the, uh, the Jewish God, but hate the Jews. <laughs> Let me say that again. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but odder still that we should choose the uh, Jewish God, but hate the Jews. Isn't that interesting? That's a parallel throughout all of history. Okay. There are people holy to the Lord. So therefore, they were to be set apart. Let's look at another passage, and that's in Exodus chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 6, where God said to this people group, You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you'll speak to the sons of Israel. Do you notice what is meant by that, or shall we say, connotated by that passage? They were not just to be a people holy to the Lord, but you sometimes wonder why in the Old Testament did God just choose one particular kind of an ethnic group, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
in relationship to all the people groups of the world. But you see, this passage tells us that they were to be a kingdom of priests. You remember that there was one tribal group called the Levites, Levites that were the priests, one-twelfth or approximately 8% of the population. But this is a passage that tells us that the entire nation was to represent God to the peoples. And it's brought out uh, sometimes later on where uh, the other nations were to come to Israel and to say, my, these are wonderful statutes and ordinances and precepts and judgments which you people are governed by. You must have a wonderful God. The next step would be would you introduce us to your God? See, the gods of the nations were not like that. So that's what they were to represent. Failed much in what they did, but that was their, that was their calling. Well, we failed in the same way, have we not? Much of the calling. You know, there's a lot of comment today about the terrorism that exists among the Muslim people groups. Say, well, you know, how about them? But if you look carefully at history, the the Christian church had 600 years to evangelize that part of the world and didn't do such a good job, you see. Mohammed didn't arrive on the scene until about 600 A.D., 600 years after the church. Is it possible that that could have been different had the church been really evangelistic in its outlook? That, of course, is not known, but it's an interesting question, is it not? Okay, so let's look also at, at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, which is, uh, and so many of the psalms are historical psalms. This is one of them. Uh, but sometimes we need to pick up certain words that are mentioned in even in the historical psalms. Psalm 78, verse 41 where it talks about a rebellion on the people of God against God. But in verse 41, the statement is made again, 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 and again. They tempted God. But notice what the next statement says. They vexed the Holy One of, of Israel or pained to bring pain to him. Now, that's interesting in terms of the character of God, is it not? Because we tend to think of God as so far off and, you know, he can't really be moved by anything and, you know, he's sort of unfeeling except he's merciful and gracious and all that. Limited him. All right, thank you. And certainly that's true. Frustrated him. Some good synonyms that are there, all applicable to the way it was. But we need to understand that God Creating you in his image has the same attributes that you do have, except it's in magnitude where we have it in minimum. Right? So therefore, if you have emotion, and you surely do, you feel things, sometimes more intensely than others, and sometimes at certain times and more intensely than other times. Don't we suppose that our great God feels that in the same way? Need to flip that? Yes, we do. Sorry. <laughs> If I get behind, I get the signal from the back. Okay, now that's good. But isn't that something we need to know? He cares for you intensely, and he feels for you deeply because he has that compassion and mercy in his heart. 
So therefore, when you go through a difficult time, you must understand that he's going through a more difficult time for you in your experience. Does that help? should help a great deal. Because oftentimes we think we're all alone when we go through tough times, right? And he is not only by your side. You know, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And then it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Have you ever thought about that? Why does it say the valley of the shadow of death? Why doesn't it just say when I walk through the valley of death? But it most, most specifically says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But you know that in order to have a shadow, you have to have two things. You have to have an object <laughs> and you have to have light, right? He's there with you all the time and you can count on that. Isn't that a marvelous assurance that we can have in our heart? Okay. Let's go to, uh, let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Yeah, let's, let's check that out. Isaiah chapter 40. Now, these will be on the PowerPoint, but sometimes it's good to look just at what the Scripture says because oftentimes there's additional words to what the PowerPoint might bring up. Uh, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal? It says the Holy One. See? Notice how he, the little phrase got put in there too. It says the Holy One. Not just says God could say that or says the Lord. But there are certain times that he emphasized his character by putting a little phrase in. It says the Holy One. And then it goes on to say, lift your eyes on high and see he who has created the stars, the one who leads forth his host by number, and he calls them all by name. Isn't that amazing? We are told by, by uh, astronomers that there are billions upon billions of stars and some we haven't even seen yet. <laughs> and not only does he know how many there are, he gives names to all of them, right? Uh, I don't know if you ever heard this um, ad where you can have a you can name have a star named after you or so on. Uh, that's uh, called raising money. <laughs> that's the only value of having star named after you. Because what good is it going to do, right? But uh, you don't need to know that because he's already got them named, right? Already got them named. Now let's look at the next uh, scripture that came up on the PowerPoint. Somehow, the, the top PowerPoint doesn't seem to want to get on, but that's all right. Uh, so let's turn to that in Habakkuk. Can you find the book of Habakkuk? It's uh, in the latter part of the Old Testament. If you go to the last book, it's Malachi, and then go back before it's Zechariah, and before that it's Haggai, and before that it's Zephaniah. Then it hit Habakkuk. Okay, does that help? <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, uh, you know, you know the books of the Bible, these last 12 in the Old Testament, they're kind of uh, <laughs> difficult to know. You <laughs> get to the last one, which is Malachi. There was this Hispanic guy, and he was trying to wrestle with all these names, you know, Hebrew names, and then he finally got to Malachi, and he said, oh, here's one of my guys. It's Malachi. <laughs> Italian. <laughs> okay, so let's look at uh, Habakkuk 2, verse 20. It's one little phrase. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. My background denominationally is Lutheran. My ethnic background is Swedish. 
So the Swedish Lutherans, which were called Augustana Lutherans in their days, uh, had a part in their service that whenever they began the service, it began with this verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It was a good way to start a service, was it not? Because it allowed the people to think, well, we need to be reverent here. And we need the statement made that God is like that, so we need to have the reverential attitude before him. Okay, let's look at this, uh, this next one. What, what, uh, yeah, there's the one I wanted. Zechariah 14.20. Let's turn to that because it's the last book of the Old Testament. And the book of Zechariah is fascinating from many points of view because it talks about things that are yet future, uh, reaching over and past and including the time in the New Testament and the last days. So in the latter part of chapter 14, which appears to be prophetic, the last section of the book itself, uh, chapter 14, verses 20 and 21, says, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. Now, you know that throughout time and history, uh, the vehicle uh, that was used for transportation was the horse, right? So we need to then note that living in a different day in which we don't use horses for mobility, we can transfer it to other kinds of things uh, that can be even inventions that man has made. There will be inscribed on the bills of the horses or the vehicles of transportation holy to the Lord. Now, isn't that something? And then it says, And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bulls before the altar. And then to add to that, it says in 21, And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Which tells us that one day, somehow in God's plan, uh, you go down to Walmart and buy some cooking pots, and that won't say, Made in China. They'll say, Holy to the Lord. And you buy a new car, it won't say body by Fisher, it will say holy to the Lord. And then notice the addendum that in the latter part of verse 21, it, the way it reads in this translation, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord. How did the other translations read? Canaanite? All say Canaanite? King James too? The word is literally merchant. Translated Canaanite, but the word is literally merchant, or it means merchant. Now, you see, if you say, what's a Canaanite? You know, some kind of pagan. But uh, merchant means nothing in the Lord's house will be merchandised in that day, which tells us a whole bunch, doesn't it, about merchandising the things of God. We need to be careful in these areas, I would think, if we recognize His holiness. Okay. Now, let's go on to the New Testament and look at, uh, we'll just look at it in the PowerPoint. John the Baptist now, when he was questioned by people, uh, because remember that the prophecy in the last part of the Old Testament, last two verses, in fact, was that I'm going to send Elijah before you, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, unless I come and smite the land with a curse. That's the last two verses of the Old Testament. For 400 years, it was the last word that they had from God. In Scripture, So when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, as he was prophesied, also in Malachi chapter 3, 
They said, are you the Elijah who is to come? Because he came with that kind of spirit, you see. And he said, no, no, I'm not that. I, I'm, I'm just one uh, wilderness, one crying in the wilderness. But one who is coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Interesting phrase. Now, the Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Godhead, was not unknown in the Old Testament. He is very, very evident from day one. Remember in Genesis 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was moving upon the face of the waters. Very evident from eternity past, including the days of creation. But now he comes, going to come in a special way, in the great movement of God, that uh, uh, exemplified itself, especially at Pentecost. But he is called the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note that the word holy is not an adjective. Like he's a spirit who is holy. Holy Spirit is his name. See, and it makes a big difference when you realize that. Because otherwise, well, God is holy. But the Holy Spirit is one of the, uh, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is part of his name. And it says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then he added that little word, and with fire. So that's something that we need to know too. And then Mary, when she received the word from the uh, angel Gabriel, and she was reflecting on this. Remember, she went to see her uh, kins lady, uh, Elizabeth. And she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Can you imagine this little girl, maybe not more than 15? We don't know that for sure. But the marriageable age for girls in that day was 15. And she was betrothed to Joseph. So we assume that there was probably the same pattern because it was, these were planned marriages and so on. So they were usually quite successful, by the way. And so uh, she was probably just a young uh, adolescent in her mid-teens. And here she was a nobody from nowhere having no family heritage that, you know, yes, they went back. Uh, she could trace her lineage back and all that kind of stuff. But as far as any social clout, she had none and lived in a town that was known for its bad reputation, Nazareth. And here the angel Gabriel, if you can imagine, himself came to see Mary. Doesn't that blow you away? You think that what must have gone through her mind those days? She had this visitation from the angel next to God himself. And so she said that the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. We will note in the next uh, scripture that's mentioned there, that which we call the Great Commission, which is the last two verses of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth and under the earth. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. Now, we read it always, almost invariably, in translations as make disciples of all nations. And that reads that way in yours, does it not? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so on. Uh, the uh, interesting thing about the word is the way it's translated It's an, in a noun form. Make disciples, that's a noun, Right? But it's not that way in the original language. It's a verb. Correctly translated, disciple the nations. 
which means that you teach and, and bring things to their awareness so that they can choose the right thing. Now, that's the Great Commission, you see, because if it was up to us to make disciples, we have failed miserably. But if it's up to the Christian church to disciple, to represent God to them, we have not failed there, except in, in measure, you see. Right? It makes a difference. It takes the guilt away uh, from people. And then in Acts 1.8, uh, remember that the disciples came to Jesus after the resurrection. He met them, remember, in the upper room. And then it tells us in Acts 1 that for... Forty days he appeared to them, speaking to them of the kingdom of God, by the way. And he kept emphasizing the kingdom of God as he did in his teaching in the parables. And so they had this concept of what the kingdom was to be. And he was king of kings and lord of lords, now in a resurrected form. So then, uh, with that thought in mind, they asked him the question, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, if you remember, it's not for you, this is the word for us, by the way, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But this is what you need to know. You shall receive power. Greek word is dunamis. You shall receive power and the Holy Spirit is to come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And the word witness is very close to the English word martyr. So, looking at this next passage in 1 Corinthians 6.19, to emphasize what was evidenced earlier, but now to reaffirm it in their minds and hearts, this truth. What? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price? which uh, reemphasizes the truth that after Pentecost, every believer was to have the Holy Spirit residing in their hearts. But something else is mentioned in that passage, and that is, notice it says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now, the word temple, there are many words in the Greek language. It can be translated temple. There was the outward temple. There was, you know, the structure of the temple. But there was a certain part of the temple that was called what in the Old Testament, where only the high priest could enter? The Holy of Holies. That's the word that's translated here. That's the emphasis of the word, the meaning of the word that's translated here. What, do you not know that your bodies are the Holy of Holies to God? That's, that's frightening. It's almost scary. It's, it's tremendously powerful, isn't it? When God goes to church, he goes to your body, <laughs> right? That's where the temple of the Holy Spirit is. And it ought to at least modify, motivate our behavior, shouldn't it? <laughs> Next time you have a temptation, right. <laughs> you know? Okay. So let's look at uh, Hebrews 4.30, where it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So we need to note then that uh, the Holy Spirit has emotion and feeling, and therefore he can be grieved. 
and does so respond when we are out of line with God, breaks his heart. So we need to note that we have the ability to bring great joy to the Lord or the ability to grieve him. It's part of our choice pattern. And then the next one, in Hebrews 3, 7, which, by the way, is a quote from Psalm 95. The Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And that is the evident concept that God wants to bring to all people, including believers, you see. Because uh, what happens is when the, Holy, when the Lord God, when their gospel is given to people in its power, not because of the speaker, the speaker is to be neutral to that, merely a carrier of that. But when the Holy Spirit is brought to people by the power of the Word of God, that produces a reaction in the part of your heart, that is the part of our body that is spiritual called heart in the Bible. And what it does is, first of all, it, it's like burning. It produces a sensation in your heart that there's, the Bible calls that conviction. It penetrates, right? And we have a choice whenever that happens to us because it's a work and a measure of what the Holy Spirit does. We have a choice. We can either respond to that or we can harden against it. And if we harden against it, we produce what happens to your hand when it's a soft hand, not used to hard work, and you start to use a shovel all day. And that is, <laughs> you develop blisters in your hand because your hand isn't used to that hard use. And at that point in time, you have a choice. Uh, what you do the next day, you can put on gloves to protect the hand, or you can get macho and tough it out and produce a callus in order that by working with the object, it doesn't hurt your hand anymore. The heart is like that. And so therefore, if the heart does not respond in a positive way to the work of the Holy Spirit, it calluses, and then that develops a hardness against the Lord. So therefore, where do you suppose the most callous unbelievers are? In the most evangelical churches, because you have to have a hard callous to not respond to the gospel, right? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Okay, let's see. Uh, let's look at Hebrews 10.10. 10. By this will we've been made holy. We've been made holy through the fact sacrifices of Jesus Christ once for all. And then just a couple other things in regard to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Second Peter 1, the Lord says that the way the Bible was written was in this manner, where it says no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. Okay? Never produced by the will of man. It wasn't that somebody just sat down and decided, well, I'll write the Bible. And then God somehow inspired that. The Holy Spirit indwelt the life of the writer so that the words, though they were his words, and with the expressions that he used, such as Paul and Moses and Peter had different phrases that they used, different styles of writing, the Holy Spirit worked through them so what they penned then became the actual words of God. Okay? 
And so therefore, using that illustration, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of all of the Bible. So therefore, we don't have the freedom or right in any context to say we don't believe that the Bible's true because we're insulting the spirit of grace. And that tells us a whole bunch about some of the things that are taught in seminaries today. This is the greatest insult to God that you can know of, that you would actually say that there's parts of the Bible that are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that would be a frightening thing to say. And these last two things, and we'll stop for our mid-time. Uh, in Revelation 4, in fact, let's go to Revelation 4 because of the words that are used there. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. Verse 8, excuse me, verse 8. The four living creatures. Now, the four living creatures are creatures that appear in Revelation without definition or explanation. And, you know, you can kind of wonder what they might represent. The number 24 seems to refer to something. And 24 is 12 doubled, right? So it could be a representation of the uh, believers from the Old and New Testament, 12, 12, seemingly to be that whatever that might mean. But anyway, these are angelic beings, each of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night. Notice, day and night they do not cease to say, remember what the angel said in the vision that Isaiah saw, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this time, isn't this, they said, who was and is and is to come. And in Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem yet to come is called the holy city. It's not a holy city now. It will become one. Okay, before we break, I have something I want to share with you today. And that is that when we came to Omaha 36 years ago, some of you aren't even that old yet. But anyway, when we came to Omaha 36 years ago, it was with the purpose of establishing a Bible school. And so we had the honor and privilege of establishing the Omaha Bible School in 1976 and uh, was in existence for 19 years. Uh, when we went to California, we uh, took a second name, Living Word Ministries, because you can't live in California and call yourself the Omaha Bible School. It wouldn't make any sense. So we're still corporately the Omaha Bible School. In the process of time, we had a number of people that went through the school and received diplomas. And uh, these many of these diplomas allowed them to go to other schools and uh, finish up a four-year degree, uh, accepting the Bible school uh, teaching was accepted as a, like a junior college and enabled them to uh, go and continue their education. And others went into various kinds of work. A lot of people became just uh, commuters and took uh, classes part-time, some for credit, but the majority just audited for their own benefit and use, which we encouraged. And then there were others that took courses by correspondence because we taped things and put them on uh, cassette tapes and VCRs in those days, and they were able to take the classes somewhat live (laughs) that way by correspondence. Most of them, you know, took a class or two, didn't really finish much at all, Uh, Very rare would we have anybody that would take the entire classes and uh, be able to establish the requirements for graduation. 
But I have one young man in our midst tonight. His name is Billy Dixon. And for several years, Billy has taken correspondence courses on his own, <laughs> taken all the required assignment work and tests that go along with it, and has uh, come through in flying colors as a grade-A student. And now he has finished his requirements, and so I want to present a diploma to him. And I've asked him to be with tonight. He's been with the classes every time I come to town and asked him if he would come so we can do it publicly rather than just send something in the mail. That's rather that's rather unofficial, is it not? And uh, Billy's mom and friend is here uh, this evening. So I'm going to ask Billy to come forward for presentation of the diploma. Stand over there. So Billy, uh, I want to share with everyone gathered here tonight that uh, Billy has really been interested in Christian ministry for a long time. He's worked for several years part-time with youth ministries at various churches. And his desire is that he might work full-time in Christian ministry. And we trust that this might be a factor and enable him to have the requirements that might be allowed him to do that. He's also very concerned for his mom and caring for her and so on. But uh, we trust that God will open the door. So I want to read, Billy, what it says here. Omaha Bible School, Second uh, Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, this certifies that William David Dixon, having completed the course of study prescribed by the Omaha Bible School and having given evidence of Christian consecration, is hereby entitled to this diploma, witness thereof, seal of the institution, and signature herein affixed. Uh, the Bible says we are to honor those who are to be honored. So it's with appreciation that I present this to you, Bill. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you might open doors for Billy in regard to future ministry that might be that which you have given him gifts to, to uh, represent from your heart. We claim that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 